Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church again. Um, don't mind me. I'm just going to be sitting today because um, I'm almost in my third trimester and things are getting a little wobbly. So we're going to sit here today and we're still going to have a good time getting to know more about God and his plan for us and what he's calling us to do. Amen. All right, so I want to start off with a little bit of a, a small history lesson. Okay, so we're just going to start off with a little history lesson. When America first began, colonists came over and they um, were, you know, starting colonies. That's why they were colonists. They were starting their own little places to live. But the indigenous people, the Native American Indians, were here already and they already had their tribes and their way of life. Well, what started to happen was colonists, actually, the European colonists who came over here to start living over here to have a new freeway to live, they ended up starting to live with indigenous people. They ended up starting to live with the Native Americans. And not everyone, but a lot of them did. We have a lot of records historically of people commenting on this and wondering why, why did the Europeans start to move and live the way of the Native Americans? We don't have hardly any, if any, record of being the other way around. Now, there was probably some that happened, right? But most often it was Europeans coming to America and as they settled here, they ended up moving in with the indigenous people in their way of life, not the other way around. There was a book in uh, 1782 that uh, someone had come over to America and wrote down these thoughts. He said, thousands of Europeans are Indians, and we have no examples of even one of these Aborigines having from choice become European. There must be in their social bond something singularly captivating and far superior to anything to be boasted of among us. What is drawing them? There must be something that is far superior to whatever our way of life is that's happening in theirs. And it's been talked about since as something called radical individualism or extremist individualism. 1831, someone commented, extremist individualism is the defining American trait. If left unchecked, it would cause the abolition of humanity. They noticed this in 1831, extremist individualism. Now, we don't think of it in those terms necessarily now, but it was noticed back then. They had moved, and there were good reasons, historically speaking, right, to move and to do all of this and wanting to have religious freedom and freedom from a tyrannical government and all of those things, but it translated into this extremist individualism that can lead to isolation because of what happened during the time. In World War two during the London Blitz, the rates of depression went down. So say you're living and your hometown is being like bombed constantly for two years-ish and your depression rates are down. Like you are feeling better, more joyful, enjoying life more. That seems backwards, right? Why is that? Well, they had this sense of community. They were all hovering in shelters together. They were all caring for each other's needs. They were bonded over this same experience that they were going through. It brought all of London together in community. So instead of being isolated, like cities are notorious for isolation because of there's more people per square capita, but more isolated than ever. And instead of it causing more depression through the trauma, it actually brought them together in community. Now, since the 1950s, church attendance has cut in half. The attendance in 1950 versus the general attendance, average attendance of churches now is 50% less than what it was before. And it's not just secularism. It's not just postmodernism. It's not just um, living in a post-Christian culture. That's not the only reason for it. All, any and all forms of community in America right now, attendance is down, especially anything that requires any type of commitment. Think about like your Lions Clubs. There's less attendance and involvement in those now. Think about a bowling league. There's less attendance and involvement. Anything that requires consistency, commitment, and showing up in any type of community, down. We're not doing it as much anymore. Here's stats in the U.S. alone about loneliness. Since the 1980s, loneliness has doubled. 
35% of people in America report that they are chronically lonely. 8% have a, only 8% of Americans have had a conversation with a neighbor in the past year. Only 8%. In 1984, the average American reported that they had three confidants, three people that they trusted in, were connected to, and would share and be open and vulnerable with. Recent studies have found that only 25% of Americans, or that 25% of Americans have zero confidants, zero. Loneliness is worse, medically speaking, has been found to be even worse than smoking 15 packs of cigarettes a day. Greater impact on obesity, it's tied to heart disease, dementia, and it's extremely strongly tied to anxiety and depression. We're just talking about loneliness, being isolated. I was going having a hard week recently, and I called someone, and her first question to me is, are you isolating yourself? <laughs> Do you have someone you can talk to? Are you alone? You need to just talk to somebody. Get someone where you're not isolated. Go, go to coffee with someone. Sign up for a group. Oh, we have group sign-ups today. Oh, I, did I plan that? No. <laughs> Individualism also leads to loneliness. Loneliness leads to tribalism instead of community. Tribalism is based on a group of people and their commonality, what they're based on, is mutual hate. Community is based on mutual love. It's more about what we love and what we're for than what we hate and what we're against. And we're striving at this church to build a strong community based on a love for Jesus and a love for people. That's what we want to do here. Our Sunday mornings are about loving on Jesus together in a community. And then what we're going to have on Wednesday nights in our other groups are about loving each other well. Especially when we're doing like our serve groups that we have, that's about loving others in our community, but also our Wednesday nights. How do we love people better? I've been trying to love people better, but I keep having these hang-ups and these things holding me back, and I can't get past it. How can I get past this? Maybe I don't even know what it is that's hanging me up. But individualism leads to loneliness. So what is Jesus' call to community? This is what we're talking about today. What is Jesus' call to community? We're going to start by uh, looking at what Jesus actually did, how he lived his own community, and that way we can find what his call for us is to community. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, we're going to go through some of his calling of people. Matthew 4, 18 through 22. And those of you who are signing up for a chosen group, you're going to get to see a lot of this in the first few episodes of the first season. It's really exciting the way that they depict it. But he says this, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Now, I will show you how to fish for people, or more commonly in translations we hear, I will show you how to, I'll make you fishers of men. That was not just Jesus's fun little catchphrase. That was actually a common known phrase where rabbis would call people to be their students and live with them in community in a way where they could glean everything they possibly could from their rabbi. So he was using a known phrase of the day to call them to follow him. A little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee repairing their nets, and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving their boat and their father behind. So here, we're seeing Jesus is calling them, and they are immediately leaving. Take note of this for a little later. These people here, they're leaving their job. They're leaving their job equipment, the things that they need to make a living. They're leaving their family members. Immediately drop their nets, leave their nets, leave their boats, leave their father, and go and follow Jesus. We see here that to follow Jesus is to live in community. If you're taking notes today, I want you to write that down. To follow Jesus is to live in community. He didn't just call them to like hop in the, in the back of the truck and then follow him around to start a carpool. He didn't, start, he didn't ask them to just like 
play Simon Says. He didn't ask them to, oh, show up when I teach at this itinerary. I want you to be there to learn. No, he invited them to live with him for the next three years. They were like a mobile, unhoused community <laughs> together. They were on the move. They didn't have a place to lay their heads at night unless it was provided to them in the spur of the moment. And they lived together in community, finding their meals together, um, making tents together at night to sleep. All of these things they did together, serving others together. Then hop down to Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. We're going to do Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Again, left immediately. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. I love that phrase, disreputable sinner. These were people who did not have good reputations. They had the opposite, and Jesus was eating with them. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. So Jesus is quoting the Bible back at the teachers of the Bible at the time. He says, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call those who think they are righteous, but who know they are sinners. Not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Kyle and I were talking um, a week or two ago and just talking about ministry and reaching people and different types of people. And he made the, because um, we were talking about a church that's in a, in a, a totally different context and culture than where we live. To different side of the country, big city, totally different environment. And he made this comment, it's harder to reach people who already think they're good with God than it is to reach people who know they need him. And that's something we really need to think about because that's basically what Jesus is saying here. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous. And then that's a reflection question to us. Do we think we're righteous? Do we think we pretty much have it together? We're doing pretty good. We mess up here and there. But overall, we're doing pretty good. Or those who know they are sinners. Are we aware of our need for a Savior? Are we aware of the sins that might be trying to creep up and bind us and hold us back? Are we aware of those? Because that's who Jesus calls, those who are aware of their need for him. This story really shows that Jesus, and you can write this down, Jesus is more interested in the level of commitment than the level of maturity. Jesus is more interested. He was eating with the very immature. They were the scum. They were the disreputable. They were the sinners. They were the rebels against their people at the time. They were the traitors. They were not spiritually mature. The spiritually mature teachers of the law came in and said, Whoa, what are you doing? Why are you? And Jesus said, no, I'm not here for you. You think you've got it all together. You're not ready for what I have to say. I'm here for these. They don't have it all together, and they know it. And they know they need some help. They know they need to be pulled up and out. They know that, yeah, they're probably scum, so they need to be pulled up out of the scum. And that's what I'm here to do. Their level of commitment to Jesus was strong, whether their maturity was there yet or not. Because once we can commit, and this goes back to what we were talking about with attendance in all community programs being cut in half right now. We're not willing to commit. So we're never going to get spiritually mature. We're never going to grow up. We're never going to get out of our loneliness until we're willing to commit to something and show up, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't feel like it. If any of you have ever been in a freedom group with me, you've heard me say, the day you don't feel like coming is the day you need it the most. The day you don't feel like showing up, the day you don't feel like you really need community or the day you're just too down in the dumps and want to stay by yourself and throw yourself a pity party, that's the day you need your community the most. We need our community to be there with us, to be the actual hands and feet of Jesus and to pull us up and out. Jesus is more interested in your level of commitment than in the level of maturity because when you're committed, you will start to see the maturity go up. You will start to see your spiritual maturity go up when you're committed to God and his people and living the way of Jesus. Your maturity will grow because you've already committed to it.
Matthew 10, starting in verse 1, 1 through 4. Jesus called his 12 disciples together. So now he's called all of them. So he's rounding them up. He gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. Here are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also called Peter, also known for putting his big foot in his mouth all the time and had a little problem with impulse control. Then Andrew, Peter's brother, then James, son of Zebedee, then John, James's brother. James and John were like, hey, can we be at your right hand once we get into eternity? They're like trying to like scheme away from all the other disciples and try to get a one-up and be the first instead of the last. Then Philip, then Bartholomew, then Thomas, poor guy known as Doubting Thomas to this day for one incident, um, just got a really bad rap. Then Matthew, the tax collector who was considered the scum of the Jewish community. He was wealthy, but on Roman's payroll, on Rome's payroll, who was oppressing the Jewish community. James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Simon the Zealot, the Zealot of the time, was a militant, like basically an alt-right militant group that was trying to raise up against Rome and overthrow them by force. They were murderers. They were frequently caught and crucified themselves because of trying to overturn Rome at every cost. So we see in this, just this list of names alone, even if all you did was look at Simon the Zealot, and uh, Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector, is on Rome's payroll, the oppressive government of the time. Then Simon is trying to kill and overturn all of Rome. They're like complete opposites politically and in every way. And they're called both to be some of the closest ones to follow Jesus. So there were these polarizing members who made up the core of his new community. We don't have to come from the same background or thought process to be able to work together, live in community, and be on mission with Jesus. It's a matter of commitment, not the level of maturity that matters. And can, when we can realize that these polarizing issues are not the issue, the issue is following Jesus and growing to be more like him, then the side effects will all pan themselves out. But we get so caught looking at Jesus' parable, the speck in your own eye or the speck in your neighbor's eye when you've got a plank in yours. You're not realizing your blind spots. We've got to be committed to Jesus so he can show us. Matthew 20, 20 through 28. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with their son. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? And if you don't know, that's what he's referring to. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he died, he says, take this cup of suffering away from me. Right before he was to be crucified. So you're like, don't know, you do not know what you're asking. You've got to go through a lot to be able to sit up in that elevated of a position. And the boy said, oh, yes, they replied, we're able. They have no clue what they're talking about. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup. He's like, ready or not, it's coming. <laughs> but Jesus, God, son of God, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Let's pause here. How much do we hear repeated the refrain of American individualism and independence say, but my right, it's my right. Now I'm not talking about any specific issues here. I'm just saying we have elevated what is my right above almost everything else in the religion of Americanism. And Jesus, son of God, says, it's not even my right to pick who sits at my right hand. Jesus, son of God, submits himself to someone else. Submits himself to the Father. The son of God laid down his rights and acknowledges rights that are not even his to start with. That's what G he didn't go around saying, it's my right too. He went around saying, nope. I'm going to lay this one down because this is what matters more. 
when the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, so they were off scheming in the side. The other disciples weren't even there. They were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. We don't flaunt our rights. We can have them, but we don't flaunt them. We don't flaunt our authority or our title or our name or our position. We don't lord it over people. Among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. People seeking a title or a position or a promotion, that's not the heart of a true follower of Jesus. It's how can I serve? How can I be a servant? And the heart of a servant gets seen and gets raised up. The heart of a servant, someone who's honoring and humble and giving and generous, not at the expense of themselves because they're at home rooted in God, right? And they're being taken care of in their own community. But everywhere else, their main thing isn't, oh, I'm going to take charge of this. Their main thing is, how can I serve? What is the best thing that I can offer up to help this team, this community? To live in this community under the rule of God is to live by a whole other set of relationship dynamics than the world. We've been taught relationship dynamics by the families we grew up in, the schools we went to, the communities we know, our neighborhoods, television. That's how we've been taught how to relate to others. But the way of this world is not the way that Jesus taught. It's not the way Jesus taught us to live. The world teaches us power and control. Jesus teaches us love and servanthood. The world teaches power and control, but Jesus teaches us loving and serving. So we've got some observations I want to give you guys about the life and teaching of Jesus when it comes to community. What is his call to community? Here's some things. Life and teaching of Jesus on community. I was in a Bible study um, recently with someone, and they asked, um, we were talking about the Great Commission, and it says, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, right? And, and someone in the group said, well, how are we supposed to know? This is someone who very much knows their Bible and has been in church and everything else. Well, how are we supposed to know what Jesus commanded and how he made disciples? I'm like, well, the four Gospels. <laughs> it's all a, there's four whole books on the life and teaching of Jesus. If you have any questions on how to follow Jesus, what he taught, what he said, read the life and teaching of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books of the New Testament. The first one that we noticed through these passages we read is that Jesus lived in community. He lived in community, day in, day out. He had these 12, sometimes there were more than that. There was like the three closest to him that he took up onto mountains for special occasions. There was the 12 that followed him that were named and called apostles. Then there was a group of 70 that we heard about later. Then we know that there were hundreds and thousands who also followed him around at times. And sometimes those numbers were slashed because whenever he was super popular, he'd throw out really unpopular opinions to people and then he'd lose half the crowd. That's Jesus' style. That's what he did. But he lived in community with these people. They moved from town to town, ministering, sleeping, eating, all of the things. They lived in community and did it together. Number two is that uh, the call to follow Jesus was a simultaneous call to join his community. So at the same time he says, follow me, he's then instinctually saying, join my community. Because he already had a couple of followers, right? I mean, besides the first ones that were called, there was nobody else there. But after that point, there were already followers. So they're living with me in community, Jesus. And so I want all of you now that I call to also come live with me in community with others. So apparently, based on the way Jesus called his followers, we can't follow Jesus alone. We need a community to live with. He didn't just pick one person to pass the baton on to. He multiplied himself into others. There was a close three, then the 12, then out from there. Apparently, we can't follow Jesus alone. Lots of people turned down Jesus' invitation. Number three, lots of people turned down Jesus' invitation and without shame from Jesus. He didn't shame them. 
but lots of people turned him down. There's the story of the rich young ruler. He says, yes, I've obeyed all the commandments. And Jesus said, well, then go and sell everything, give it to the poor, and then you can follow me. He picked out the one thing that his heart was tied to, the thing that he wouldn't let go. And he turned away sad and didn't follow him. So just as we had people eager and drop everything immediately to follow Jesus, we also see people who couldn't do it. They couldn't come to terms with it. They said, no, I have this, 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 and this to do first. I know it doesn't quite fit into your way of doing things, so I'm going to get those done first, and then I'll follow you. Or I'll follow you as long as I can still do this one thing. Number four, those who said yes and gave up everything else to follow Jesus were these three different things. The first one is they were at different levels of maturity. They were at different levels of maturity. Some of them had gone to Hebrew school. Some of them had dropped out and become tax collectors. Some of them left and went to the militia. Some of them just picked up the trade of their father. Some of them were all these things, right? They were at different levels of commitment and maturity. Those who said yes and gave up everything else to follow Jesus were also across the demographic and political spectrum. They were all over the gamut of it all over, and we saw that exemplified especially through Matthew and Simon the Zealot. And then those who said yes and gave up everything else to follow Jesus probably got into regular conflict. I mean, think of the most uh, all the way right on the political spectrum person that you know, and then think of the most all the way left on the political spectrum you know. Maybe it's not someone you know personally. Maybe it is. Maybe it's uh, who you see on Fox News or CNN. And imagine them just living together in community. How do you think coffee would be in the morning? Like, (laughs) you hear about, like, current events over the dinner table, and you think Thanksgiving's bad with family. Just imagine those two living in community together, right? Oh, man, it's going to be rough. There was probably most likely regular conflict. Number five that we see in Jesus' life and teaching on community is that the end goal of his community was to grow, uh, to mature his apprentices into people who were like him. He wanted to grow and mature those who followed him, his disciples, his apprentices, whatever you want to call them. He wanted to grow them into people who were more like them. So yes, their maturity level was all across the spectrum, but he wanted to grow them. As long as they were committed, they could be on board, fully committed, drop everything committed. But then the goal was to grow them. He wanted them to be a people marked by a lot of love and a lot of service. That's what he wanted his people to be marked by. This is different than what we usually think of when we think of the word community. It's not normally what we think of. We might think of our town, our neighborhood, um, a certain group of people that we associate on a regular basis. But different ways that we think of community is, number one, we mistake connectivity for community. Sometimes we think that just because we're well-connected, like I have a 1,000 friends on Facebook. I have such a big community. We think we're connected, right? I'm keeping in community with these people because they see pictures of my kids or whatever the case may be, which is all well and good. Like that's not a bad thing, but that's not really the heart of what community is. Like online community is kind of like an oxymoron. Really, loneliness is on the rise since we've had more connectivity online and with the internet. It's through the roof. And there's actually a correlation between the time you spend online and your level of loneliness going up. The amount of time you spend online, the amount of loneliness goes up. There's a correlation in that. Number two is we mistake chemistry for community. So, hey, I just get along with you so great. Like, we click. It's like, oh, my goodness, you too? No. Like, me and Jenna just this week found out that, I'm sorry, I'm going to tell everyone our little quirky little interesting thing, that we both like to just sit here with our hand up for no good reason. Like, it's just as comfortable to, like, feel the weight of gravity on my extended hand. I don't know why. But I'll just lay down, and I'll just be laying out with my hand up. Kyle makes fun of me. He's like, this is ridiculous. And I just found out Jenna does that too. So now we have all this chemistry. We're we're soulmates because no one else in the world just randomly throws their hand up in the air for comfort and fun or whatever, you know? We that's chemistry, right? When we it's based on like a you you too? 
what? I know I have really good relationships with people who we have fostered and adopted and been through similar challenges or have kids with similar struggles. And so we're really connected because we get something the other person doesn't get. But she lives in St. Louis. Am I living day in and day out in community with her? No. You know how many times me and her are like, I wish we could swap babysitters for each other <laughs> because you get my kid. You know, I wish that we could, uh, I wish that I could just like drop dinner off at your house because I know that you've just been dealing with crisis all day and cooking is the least of your worries right now. You know how often we want to be in community with each other, but we're not actually. We're very connected and we're good friends, but we're not actually part of each other's community. So if chemistry, if connectivity isn't actually community, what is community in Jesus' terms? The word in the Bible used for community Uh, community in the New Testament is koinonia, the Greek word is koinonia. It means community, fellowship, partnership, sharing, or to have in common. It's people you live by and follow Jesus with. So what is community? People you live near to, like you could swap babysitters (laughs) if you needed it. You could drop off a casserole if you know that they need something or just pick up some Subway and drop it off. You could do that with them. You're living in near proximity and also you're following Jesus together. We live near each other and we follow Jesus together. Those are people that can make up your community. For years, centuries, ancient Christianity has considered silence and solitude and community to be considered the two most important spiritual practices, which you would think, wait, community and solitude, weren't we just saying isolation and loneliness is not good? There's a difference between solitude, just being by yourself, and isolating yourself and loneliness. Why then do we say silence and solitude and community should be considered the two most important spiritual practices? It's because they're, I've heard someone put it this way this week, they are the two containers that every other practice of Jesus fits into. Every other spiritual discipline, if we wanna spend one-on-one time praying with God, it fits into silence and solitude. If we wanna worship God corporately, it fits into community. If we wanna practice hospitality, fits into community. You know, Everything else you can think of, it can fit into silence and solitude or it can fit into community. They're the containers that hold all the others. And through the gospels, through um, the books of Jesus' life on earth, Jesus would go back and forth between the two regularly. I say Jesus was gone. The disciples were like in a storm on the ocean or on the sea. And Jesus was gone because he had left to pray. And then Jesus comes walking on the water to them and calms the storm. He's constantly in and out. There were crowds of people and Jesus just walked through them. It was like, now we need a break. Or I'm going to get on the boat and we're going to distance it a little bit because there are just too many people pressing in. And then he'd show back up and feed 5,000 men and women and children. (laughs) He was constantly back and forth. It was his rhythm. But our rhythm between these two containers looks more like this. We're scared to go into silence and solitude because what would happen if I really thought about how I'm actually feeling? What would happen if we actually bared our soul before God and let him point some things out? Or what would happen if I forget to put that thing that just flitted through my head on a to-do list? That's sometimes more my scare than God pointing a finger on my soul laid bare is, what if I forget to do that thing? Or what if now I don't have time to do this? Or it's taking time away from my family. But when we center ourselves in silence and solitude before God and get to know him more and let him know us more and all of this, we're actually better for our family and those around us. Or we're scared to go all the way into community past just hanging out and into vulnerability and openness because what will they think of me? They won't look at me the same. No one gets to know this part of me. Instead, we end up having this like quasi-community or pseudo-community. Like we think it's community, but it's not really all Jesus wants for us. Maybe we go to church and we go to small groups weekly, but we hold back who we actually are. We don't actually give. Or we sign up for a small group, but then we actually only end up showing to one or two here and there. And we're not really giving ourselves to the rest of the people in that community. The reasons for this are like we've talked about individualism, that feeling isolated, feeling like I need to be my own self, right? 
but we're made to live in community. Or idealism, we become demanding of what we think community has to look like, rather than just being grateful to receive from community whatever it is. Or intimidation, we're scared of it. It's not about being introverted or extroverted. We all need community. We all need community. We need to not be intimidated of it and let the Holy Spirit walk with us through it. Committing to a Christian community each time we do it is recommitting to follow Jesus every single time we show up. Every time we show up for our community, we're recommitting to following Jesus because he wants us to do it together. Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs, it's closer to the New Testament practice of confession than almost anything we do in church. They sit around, they say who they are, and they say, I got drunk on Tuesday. (laughs) I need some help. They lay it out, and they lean in, and they commit, and they open up, and they press in. We have to move into more vulnerability, have accountability in close Christian community. People can still come to church and participate in church and still be lonely because they share the goodness of them, but not the wrongness of them. We have to be willing to share the goodness of ourselves and the wrongness to be able to grow. If we're committed to share all of who we are, the spiritual maturity grows. He cares more about our commitment and our commitment to the whole thing than he cares about our maturity. James 5.16 is one of my absolute favorite verses when it comes to following Jesus in community. It says this, confess your sins to each other. Share the wrongness. And pray for each other. Share the goodness that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. We have to share all of ourselves, even when it's intimidating, even when it's scary, even when it might make us look bad. We share it in community to others, not just to God. It doesn't just say confess your sins to God and you'll be healed. Confess your sins to God and you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven. Confess your sins to others and you'll find spiritual healing in every other kind. There's two ways to confess, to God and to each other. There are so many commandments in the Bible that are one another commandments. Do this to one another. So I'm going to read you just one little portion of it. It's all wrapped neatly in Romans 10 verses, uh, or Romans 12, 10 through 13. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. And these are through the whole New Testament, everywhere, take care of one another in all these ways. Always be eager to serve and practice hospitality. So wrapping it up, the New Testament writers assume two important things about you. The New Testament writers are, when they're telling you how to live for Jesus, they assume first that you're in community. So they're telling you these things they're telling you, assuming that, yeah, to follow Jesus is him following you to be with the 12 and in community and do life together. So I'm assuming you're already in community. And then everything else that they write is assuming that living in your community is messy. So they assume that you're not alone, you're doing life together with other believers, and that doing that life together with other believers is messy because he cares more about your commitment than your maturity. There are people you have to accept because you don't want to, people you need to bear with, people you need to honor because you don't like them, etc. It's going to be messy. You're not going to like everyone in your community, right? But we still are eager and enthusiastic to serve and practice hospitality. As scary as it is, community is Jesus' school of love. Living in community is what teaches us how to love. Community, the people you do life with, is your training ground for love. Our vision for small groups, what we call small groups at this church, is to become a true community like what we've been describing. We don't want it just to be small groups, and those are all like their own little mini programs, and they make clicks and all of that. That's not what we want. 
What we want is for it to be people you can find who live near you who are following Jesus and you can really do life together and you can open up with them and you can kick loneliness to the curve and you can commit to them and to the process and see spiritual maturity grow, your love for others grow, and your understanding of yourself and God grow. It's where we find freedom when we confess to one another. We're healed when we do life together. We're not alone. We don't want you to do life alone because life is better together. It's the way Jesus made it to be. It's why he calls us to community. So my challenge to each of you today is to help us build this vision. The way to help build this vision, it sounds, it sounds like I'm just like trying to be all salesy up here, but I promise you I am not. The best way to help us with this vision is to pick a group, sign up, and commit. Commit to it, show up, check in with the one you maybe have the most chemistry or connectivity with, check in with them during the weeks in between and pray for one another. Ask how it's going with their kid who got hurt, whatever it is. Bring snacks to the group. Commit, dig in so that we can really be a community. Pastor Kyle and I can't twist your arm into kicking loneliness and isolation aside. We can't do that. We can try. But what we can do is provide opportunities for you to commit. To you to commit to help building community so that this place feels more and more and more like koinonia. Like what community with Jesus and his people is really supposed to be. So help us build that vision. As we practice the way of Jesus, we need partners for the journey a community to help us along the way. But community doesn't just happen by accident. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes intentionality and faithfulness over the long haul. So where do we start? We've got to find a community of people to practice the way of Jesus with. Today, you don't have any excuses. So they just don't. I mean, you might come up with something later, but today there's no excuses. You can sign up online. You can sign up on your phone. You can sign up um, on the connection card in your bulletin. You can sign up on the sheets out there. No excuses today to stay lonely or out of community. No excuses. We have made it as, as possible for you as possible to be able to sign up and be in community. So below, I, below as in what I'm reading to you, Ways to practice this. I like to give you guys practical ways to practice what we talk about. If you need to find community, number one is join a local church. If you haven't joined a church yet, you're welcome to join us here. If not, we can let you know what some other groups of churches are that are fantastic. Um, we are not in competition with each other. We are supporting one another as the big C church, all of us little C churches. We would love for you to be a part of this family and this community. Um, but if this is not your fit, that's fine. Not everyone is everyone's fit. Number two, sign up for your church's small groups. Oh, we have sign-up sheets today, guys. Like, you won't be coming in late or anything. They're all just starting. Number three, reach out to a few friends. So you sign up for a group and you're a little nervous because maybe you don't know anyone yet. Ask someone to come with you. Grab the person next to you and be like, hey, we should sign up for a group together. Which one do you think you could come to? Reach out to a few friends to go. Something else you could do is form a triad. So this is a group of like three or four people. You get together, call or text two friends, even if you're not very close, and ask them if they'd be willing to practice confession. So this is like the next level up. Can you call someone for five minutes and be like, I sinned yesterday and I need to tell you about it. So just weekly, you like get together, you share a meal or coffee, and you work through these different spiritual disciplines. You confess to one another, you practice and pray with one another. We want you to um, participate in these things. We want you to participate with one another. Commit to one another. If everyone could bow your head and close your eyes. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you gave up so much of yourself to come here and show us how to follow you, how to live with others. We weren't getting it. We still aren't getting it. And you came and you showed us how. And I pray, Jesus, that you would continue to reveal that to us, that we would take up every opportunity that we can to live the way that you've called us to live for you, following you, and following you with others. That we would know it's going to be real hard to reach this world for you if we're doing it alone. 
It's going to be real hard to even get ourselves up out of the pit sometimes if we're just doing it alone. You gave us each other to be your hands and feet. I pray that today, more than anything, we would realize our need for you and for your way of living. Help us to long to know you and to long to live the way that you did. If everyone could keep your head bowed and your eyes closed, just want to think back to that verse where Jesus said, it's not those who are righteous that I've come to and called. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick, those who know that they're sinners. If you're here today, you know that you're a sinner, and not only that, but you've never tried giving it a shot following Jesus. Or maybe you did a really long time ago, and you backed out, and you haven't even been thinking about it much since. And today, you want to give your life to him. Whether it's a recommitment or whether it's for the first time, you know you need to follow Jesus, whatever that looks like. We're learning together what it looks like to follow Jesus. So if that's you today on the count of three, on the count of three, I'm just gonna give you an opportunity to raise your hand because we want our physical bodies to be an expression of what God's doing in our heart. The Holy Spirit's working in our heart already and we encourage our whole being to move by engaging the physical body that he's given us. So if that's you today, you know you're a sinner, you know you need him, and you haven't done it before with him. You're ready to recommit to that today. On the count of three, raise your hand. One, two, three. Thank you. Thank you for everyone who raised their hand, for those who maybe couldn't get it up, but you're committing in your heart today. Let's all of us together as a recommitment and in community, repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up. I've done wrong. I know I'm not healthy, but I'm sick. And I need you. Come be my savior. Save me from myself, from my loneliness, from my sin. I commit to you today. I build my life on you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. If you could stand with us today, we're going to do a new song as we close out in worship. It's called Christ Be Magnified. And in this song, it talks a lot about all of creation. If you've heard the verse before, if we don't praise, the rocks will cry out because that's how much he deserves it. And that all of creation is a testament and a testimony to who Jesus is. So during this time, this is your time to respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing in you, whatever it is, whether it had anything to do with the message or not. I pray that you've allowed the Holy Spirit to work in your life through this service today. So there's prayer teams in the back, there's communion and a cross in the back. You can do that or stay where you're at and worship. Let the words speak to you, to God, through you, to God. Whether you're singing along or you're learning it, this is worship to God, all of who he is, that he deserves the praise and the glory no matter what, and that we're going to commit to life that glorifies and magnifies him no matter what. So let's sing this song together today.